From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week via Skype are VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and VOA executive producer Steve Reddish. And welcome to the show, Anita and Steve. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, here are the issues. The United States said it does not know the origin of the three high-altitude objects it shot down recently as they drifted in the winds over North America. The government said it does not believe the objects were surveillance aircraft, though it is leaving open the possibility that they may be. Russia launched missile strikes across Ukraine after Western allies pledged to ramp up military aid to the Ukrainian armed forces to support a planned counteroffensive. Former Vice President Mike Pence is planning to fight a subpoena by the special counsel overseeing investigations into efforts by former President Donald Trump. Senator Dianne Feinstein, who will be 90 in June and who encouraged many Democratic women in elective politics, announced she will retire at the end of her term in January 2025. South Carolina Republican Nikki Haley kicked off her presidential campaign at a rally. She is now in competition with former President Donald Trump, who was also her boss in 2017 when she shifted from serving as her state's governor to U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. A gunman shot and killed three students and injured five others on the campus of Michigan State University Monday night before fatally shooting himself. And in El Paso, Texas, one person was killed and three others injured in a shooting at a mall. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, lawmakers' lists of questions outnumber U.S. government answers about a Chinese spy balloon and a trio of mysterious aerial objects shot down between Alaska and the Great Lakes region this past weekend. So, Anita, why doesn't President Biden view the Chinese balloon that flew across the U.S. as a security breach? I mean, I think the White House clearly does view that as as some sort of breach. They shot it down over the coast near South Carolina. So it's definitely a breach, as were the other three. It's just that the circumstances were obviously different. The first balloon was flying at 60,000 feet which makes it less imperative to shoot down immediately because it wasn't in civilian airspace. But also this was unprecedented and the military was scrambling to figure out what to do. They didn't want to shoot it down over the continental United States. I think the word balloon is misleading here. It makes it sound like a kid's toy or something that you can just shoot down without any consequences. This thing was the size of three school buses and this is going to fall on somebody or something. I think that was why they treated it the way they did. The next three balloons, or let's not even call them balloons, let's call them what they are, unidentified flying objects. The next three objects, they were able to shoot down because they were able to shoot them down in remote areas of the United States and Canada. And also, critically, these were flying in the 20 to 40,000 foot range, which is something that they deemed to be a threat to civilian aircraft. It seems like the political issue over the balloon, and you're right, Anita, it is much more than just a balloon, even a hot air balloon. It seems like it's more about appearances than action. It's been more than three weeks since China's balloon was spotted, two weeks since it was down, more than a week since the other flying objects were spotted and down, and we've had very little from President Biden. He made a glancing reference 
to the China balloon in his State of the Union speech back on February 7th. But otherwise, we haven't heard anything from him. And we've heard from the White House press secretary, the national security spokesman, but not the president. I think a lot of the issues over it is perhaps a legacy from the Trump presidency. When Americans heard from the president, mostly through Twitter, on a regular, almost constant basis, and Biden has been very intentional about keeping a low profile and not being in front of Americans' faces and on their Twitter feeds and in their social media on a regular and a constant basis. And perhaps the administration either overshot that intentionality or, as they have been telling us, they don't know much about especially the other three objects the Chinese balloon, parts of it is still being recovered off the Atlantic Ocean. The other three objects, as Anita said, in very remote places in the United States and Canada, hard to reach. The object that was shot over Lake Huron has fallen into the lake, and it's a deep lake. So recovery efforts are still happening. Then they've got to find out what these things are. So some of the silence from the Biden administration can be blamed on both politics and what they know and when they will know it. That's a good summation from Steve. I think the problem is, as Steve said, there are more questions than there are answers. And there's a great risk because every single word that the president utters is important that he could, I believe the technical term is he could freak out the American people and of course the people of the world by making a misstep or saying something that's taken the wrong way. And I think the White House wants to be very careful not to freak people out here. And they're doing their level best to keep the temperature down, certainly try and, and say, we don't necessarily think we're being visited from outer space. Well, Russia launched missile strikes across Ukraine after Western allies pledged to ramp up military aid to the Ukrainian armed forces to support a planned counteroffensive. So given this situation, what direction now is this war headed in? The short answer to that is not a good direction because fighting is going to continue in the foreseeable future. We're seeing that now in Ukraine with the Russians launching a new offensive and the Ukrainians preparing to launch a counteroffensive, possibly in the south. I think it's just important to not view this as a giant abstract chessboard, but the lives of 40 million Ukrainians are caught in between these two militaries. This is not good for ordinary people of Ukraine who are still there, for the children of Ukraine, for the old people of Ukraine. And that is where we are going for the foreseeable future. I think the biggest concern in Washington seems to be managing the expectations about how much more assistance the United States can reasonably give to Ukraine, considering Republicans hold the House of Representatives. And they've made it clear that there will not be a blank check for Ukraine. As well, managing the expectations of Ukraine itself as far as whether it can push Russia out of all of the Ukrainian land that Russia now occupies, which is the stated goal of Zelensky and others in the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian politics. And that includes Crimea. That is going to be a very big lift 
for Ukraine to, to push Russia out of all of these occupied territories. And the Washington Post quotes a Ukrainian platoon leader on the eastern front in Bakhmut saying the two sides are so close to each other that if the Russians push any closer, and we're not talking about miles, we're talking about kilometers, that the Ukrainians will have to move back just so that their artillery doesn't go over the Russian lines and land harmlessly behind them. So that's how close the two sides are out on the Eastern Front. And spring is coming, which will then make the ground a lot more soggier for trucks and other armored vehicles to move through there. So we're kind of in this stalemate at the moment as far as where the two sides are. They can't move very far either way. And Russia is still sending many, many more people to the front lines. I just want to highlight that the vice president left this week for the Munich Security Conference, which is where ostensibly there there might be some real talk between a lot of the players. There's diplomatic efforts happening on the sidelines that very much could become the main show. And one hopes that that is how it's going to end, because this is unsustainable for people who are living underneath this. President Biden and the other leaders in Europe and NATO's Secretary General Stoltenberg all have to expend political capital in their individual countries in order to keep supplying Ukraine with all of these weapons. At some point, if this continues to grind into a stalemate, the political will is going to be tested, um, certainly here in the United States. It's already being tested. And in Europe, the political will will be tested perhaps sooner than many in Europe want that political will to be tested. That just plays into the Russian playbook of grinding this war to the point where they can be in a position to sue for peace. And now that we're looking at this war in timelines of years, whereas, you know, when it started, I think we were hoping it would be weeks, then months, and now we're looking at years, you have to really look ahead to see that both President Zelensky and Putin are up for re-election in 2024. That's next year. So the politics of this is going to start to play a more active role in this conflict. Just to paint you a picture quickly of the politics, it looks like Zelensky's popularity is pretty high. It surged right after the invasion, surpassing all of the other competition. I think his approval ratings are something ridiculous, like 80% right now. Whereas Putin is harder to read because observers have said that Russia's Previous elections have not been free and fair. Putin jails his political opponents. He shuts down media organizations that are critical of him. It's a legitimate question to ask if Putin can win the 2024 election fairly. But will he win the 2024 election under the conditions that he set in the previous elections? Possibly. So it's very interesting to also, now that this war has expanded in scope, to look at all of the other players and all of the other features that are going to really strongly affect it. Very interesting. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, we'll discuss new developments in U.S. politics. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com issues. While you're there, check out our other programs, 
Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and VOA executive producer Steve Reddish. Well, former Vice President Mike Pence is preparing to resist a grand jury subpoena for testimony about former President Donald Trump's push to overturn the 2020 election. Pence's allies say he is covered by the constitutional provision that protects congressional officials from legal proceedings related to their work. And this is language known as the speech or debate clause. Given this investigation, what can we expect from it for both Pence and the special counsel Jack Smith? The subpoena for Vice President Pence and now a subpoena for the former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows seems to indicate that Special Counsel Jack Smith is getting very close to deciding whether or not to bring charges against Donald Trump and perhaps others. Pence is in a tough political spot. All indications are he wants to run for president. But if he testifies against Donald Trump, it will likely close the door on getting votes from about 25 to maybe 40 percent of Republican voters who are just unabashedly pro-Trump. So he's trying to look for every opportunity to keep from testifying, whether it's invoking executive privilege or the speech and debate clause, which you mentioned shields members of Congress from being prosecuted for the things that they say in the course of their duties. The vice president's job is the only one that straddles the three branches of government. The vice president is clearly part of the executive branch as the second in command and a part of the legislative branch as the Constitution designates the vice president as the president of the Senate. It's mostly a ceremonial duty. Mostly the vice president is there as the president of the Senate to cast a tie-breaking vote. Otherwise, the vice president has very little to do with the Senate. Whether or not the speech and debate clause will be an effective defense for Pence as far as keeping him from testifying, that's going to be decided in the courts. How long it will take for the courts to clear this issue up, Pence is hoping for quite a long delay. I think it's just perplexing how January 6, 2021 might have been the most politically important day of Mike Pence's life. And the ethical implications of how he behaved on that day are just fascinating because it's widely agreed that legally, morally, he did the right thing by allowing the process to continue. And that's something he said before he went into the chamber on January 6th. He said, you know, my presence here is largely ceremonial. So it's quite rich that he's now claiming the speech and debate clause covers him because he said before he went in that he wasn't going to be doing anything anyway that day. But it's interesting how politically that has hurt him. As Steve mentioned, the Republican base that supports Donald Trump and thinks that he should have done what Trump asked him to do, which was basically overturn the election. This is very interesting. This is part of the continuing saga of January 6th, the day that for Mike Pence will live rent free in his head for the rest of his life. Yes, and moving on to other U.S. political news, Senator Dianne Feinstein, who will be 90 in June and who encouraged many Democratic women in elective politics, announced she will retire at the end of her term in January 2025. So, Anita, how much of a trailblazer is Feinstein? 
I mean, she's definitely a trailblazer. She's the longest serving woman in the Senate. And that's no small thing. She's from a very populous state, California, and she was prominent in that state during many major events, such as the assassination of gay rights activist Harvey Milk in San Francisco, which could have been a flashpoint. And she's credited with kind of bringing down the temperature and, and steering her constituency in a better direction. And we saw this with both the president and the vice president the same day issuing statements, commending her, praising her work and saying that she will stand in history. So it's very significant. But the other side of the coin is she is nearly 90. There have been reports that she is in pretty significant cognitive decline. She's not leaving on necessarily the sweetest of notes. She had to be corrected by a staff member on the day the announcement was released, a reporter asked her about her announced retirement. And she said, quote, I haven't made that decision. I haven't released anything. And then an aide had to tell her, indeed, a statement had to be released. So the issues of her cognitive awareness is there, whether or not it's significant, doesn't really matter. The issue is there. The race for her seat began well before her announcement. Two Democrats from the House of Representatives announced that in January, their intentions to seek her seat and more candidates are expected because this is a coveted seat. She's held it since 1992. And yes, she is an icon for women in politics and how she was able to manage San Francisco City Board and the assassination of fellow board member Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone took place back in the late 80s. She became mayor, as Anita said, cooled the temperature down in San Francisco. And that started an incredible rise in her stature. And 30 years in the Senate is rather remarkable for anybody, much less Dianne Feinstein and any woman. Very good. Well, we'll move on to talk about the last politician, and that is South Carolina Republican Nikki Haley, who has thrown her hat into the GOP presidential ring. But she has lots of company, a number of former Trump administration officials, including former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and we talked about earlier, former Vice President Mike Pence. So Nikki Haley, what are your thoughts on her? She's got an uphill battle. Right now, take polls for what you want to take it for. But a Monmouth University poll just out shows Trump and DeSantis, each with 33 percent of Republican support. After Trump and DeSantis is former Vice President Pence at 2 percent. Haley and all of the others are at 1 percent each. And it's really all about math, because getting the nomination for the Republican Party, you got to go through a primary season in which whoever finishes first gets all of the delegates from the states. The Democrats do it differently. They apportion as far as the primary votes are concerned, but it's winner take all in the Republican primary. So let's say Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and all of these other people who want the nomination are running for president on the Republican side. And let's say Trump gets 35 percent of the vote in a state and DeSantis gets 31 percent of the vote in the states and everybody else follows along that. Trump gets all of the delegates because it's winner take all. So Haley's got a real tough climb aside from 
her flip-flopping on a lot of issues regarding Trump and promising not to run against Trump in 2024 and now going back on that word. So there's a lot there for Haley to overcome. This is a woman who is making history by just entering this race, by the way. She will be the first Indian American candidate in a major presidential race. That's kind of cool. And she was one of the first female governors in the United States. But her big problem is, strangely enough, her home state of South Carolina, because there's going to be a Republican primary there. As Steve just explained, it's a winner-take-all system. She is in a no-win position here because she's expected to win this primary. Because if you can't win a primary on your home turf, then how far can you go in politics? So she's expected to win it. But if she doesn't win it, it's going to take her out, basically. So she has this immense pressure to perform in her home state. But even if she does perform and win in her home state, she's not going to get any credit because the messaging is going to be, well, of course she won in South Carolina. She's from South Carolina. So this is probably going to be her Achilles heel in the early parts of this campaign. Very interesting. Well, we'll move on to our last topic where tragedy struck at Michigan State University where a gunman shot and killed three students and injured five others Monday night before fatally shooting himself and also mentioning another shooting that took place in El Paso where one person was killed and three others injured. Earlier in the week, speaking at the National Association of Counties, President Biden said shootings were happening far too often in this country. What more can be done at this point. Bible of an assault weapons ban, which was enacted in 1994 and expired in 2004, which, by the way, if you look at the timeline, you see that mass shootings have jumped in severity and frequency since that ban expired. So there is data to support, he argues, that an assault weapons ban will actually bring this down. But he faces, of course, a lot of challenges in Congress because it is controlled by Republicans in one house and they are not going to support this. With 68 now, I believe, shootings in 2023 alone, putting us well on track to meet the grim record of 647 mass shootings in 2022. This is an only in America problem. Gun laws need to be tightened in the United States. It's not happening it's incredibly sad and I feel helpless. What makes me saddest about what happened at Michigan State is we had two people who survived their second mass shooting at a school. That just personally just rips me and makes me feel even sadder that not only are all of these people who survived, I'm incredibly sad for the families of those who perished. Well, the silver lining of this, if you can even say that there's a silver lining, is that one of those survivors who was speaking to news media, she survived the Sandy Hook killing, the massacre in 2014, in which 28 elementary school children were murdered in their school. She said that she was so traumatized by that happening to her when she was in sixth grade that she didn't speak about it for years. And now that it's happened at her university, she says, I can't stop speaking about it and I will not stop speaking about it. And this needs to end. She said that this is a generational shift and that her generation is so traumatized by the specter, the reality of gun violence and mass shootings that they are resolved to do something. And we are seeing that growth in youth activism around this issue. Well, it's time now to find out what is weighing on the minds of our panelists this week. Anita, what is weighing on your mind? 
I'm thinking about the massive earthquake that hit in Turkey near the Syrian border and about all of those families who fled conflict in Syria to the city of Gaziantep in Turkey, which was the epicenter of the first quake, only to have the sky kind of fall in on them. It wasn't the sky, it was the earth shaking and everything fell down. These families are traumatized. They already struggled to get a toehold and reestablish themselves in a new country only for this to happen. As for the Turkish population, they are underneath the leader Tayyip Erdogan, and he has loosened building standards, and this is being blamed for these buildings falling down, and he faces an election in May, and there are questions now over whether he's going to postpone or change the date of that election because of this disaster, and that is going to just add fuel to the fire, I think, and I'm very worried about that population there, and my heart goes out to them, and I just hope that they can make it through these cold temperatures. Thank you. And Steve? We're halfway through winter here in Washington, and you mentioned the cold temperatures that the earthquake survivors are facing in Turkey and Syria. Here, the temperature got up to 15 degrees Celsius yesterday, and it's expected to get up to 18 degrees, 65 Fahrenheit today. It is way too warm for the middle of February. Our cherry blossoms here in Washington may break the early blooming record, and I'm seeing buds starting to grow on my dogwood tree out my window right now. It is way too early, and we still have a month to go before spring. Well, thank you both for your comments, and we will end the show on those thoughts. My thanks to our panelists, VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and VOA executive producer Steve Reddish. I'm Kim Lewis, and be sure to join us next week for more Issues in the News. We'll be right back. 